how long would you have waited for me? You know, when I was in college, we were instructed we had to wait 10 minutes for an associate professor. We had to wait one, 15 minutes for a full professor. This morning, we're going to talk about waiting. <laughs> Much of the Christmas stories are about waiting. We're going to journey to the other side of the Christ child's birth narrative. 40 days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph take their baby and they travel about five miles north to Jerusalem. And there they will perform two uh, acts of obedience to the Old Testament law. According to the law, the firstborn, human or animal, was sacred to God. And in recognition of God's gracious giving of life, this one was set aside for God's use. Look at this from the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 3. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. And God set an entire tribe apart just to serve him. And since they performed all the temple duties instead of the firstborn, the parents of non-Levites were required to pay a redemption fee. Here are the instructions given to Aaron, the head of the Levitical priests, from Numbers 18. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. As to their redemption price, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver. In the redemption ceremony, the father brought the child to a priest. The mother was not obligated to attend, but she often did so. And the priest held the child. Well, the father gave the priest five shekels of silver in his place. And the priest then returned the child to the father. Just a note, think about this. Isn't it ironic that the one who would be redeemer and, and whose personal sacrifice would be the price of the redemption of our souls should also be redeemed according to the law. Incredible symbolism as Jesus became identified with those whom he came to save. The law also declared that after a woman gave birth, she should, could not enter into the temple for 40 days if the child was a boy or 80 days if the child was a girl. She also could not participate in any of the religious ceremonies during this time. And at the end of that period, she had to bring to the temple a lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon for a sin offering. If she could not afford the lamb, she was allowed to bring another pigeon. And this became known as the offering of the poor, which is what Mary and Joseph brought. This is further evidence to me that the Magi have not yet found their way to Bethlehem. Because you see, with 
frankincense, gold, and myrrh, they would not be giving the offering of the poor. And while at the temple, Mary and Joseph have two encounters that affirm the unique identity of this child and point to the majesty of this Jesus, this Christ child, as the Son of God, as God's eternal Son. And it all has to do with hope and waiting. The first encounter is with a man by the name of Simeon. We don't know much about him. He's an elderly man. Uh, He's seen a lot of history that's happened to his beloved Israel. He was probably just a boy when the Roman Empire took control of Palestine some 60 years before. So he's lived through some very difficult days of his nation. And yet, with all of that, he's a man of hope. Would you turn in in your Bible, if you have it along, to Luke chapter 2. We're very familiar with the early verses of this chapter as it tells Luke's version of the Christmas story. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to pick up at verse 25. So if you want to follow along, Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the, temp- in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Luke tells us that Simeon was a righteous man. It means that he was in right standing before God. He's also devout. W.E. Vine, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, says about this word that it means careful as to the realization of the presence and claims of God, reverencing God, pious. These two things suggest that Simeon was a man who trusted God to bring about for Israel what he had long prepared to do and for which Israel was in desperate need of. It also shows a man who had a deep reverence for God. That's probably why a third characteristic is present. Simeon was influenced by the Holy Spirit. There was a spiritual receptivity there to spiritual things, to the things of God. And God then chose to reveal himself in this way to this spiritually attuned man. With the assurance that he would see the Christ, Simeon, I would guess, must have gone to the temple every day, fully assured 
that God would produce what he had promised. I suspect that his days were filled with prayer while waiting expectantly. No doubt he thought much on what God had told him and indicated and revealed to him. How long before he'd be given this hope? Yeah, the text doesn't tell us. I suspect it's been a lengthy time. And in hoping, Simeon exercised believing faith. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews puts it this way, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this is why we know that God was pleased with Simeon. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, that is God, for the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Simeon was confidently hoping. What was he hoping for? The text says the consolation of Israel, the comfort, the the relief that the Messiah would bring to his people. The words of the prophet Isaiah must have often come to his mind while he was waiting. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here's Simeon, he's expectant. You know, expectancy is such a powerful thing. It must surely have been a part of the life of the German priest who was asked why he always removed his hat when he gave catechism to the children of lowly coal miners. The priest answered that he never knew who might be among those children, maybe someone who might change the world. His most famous student, the reformer Martin Luther. Simeon waited reverently God gave the promise. God would have to deliver. And as each year passed, don't you wonder how the temptation must have been present to doubt God? But he didn't lose hope. He didn't give up. And here's where you need to act on faith. How often Simeon appeared in the temple, eyes searching the crowds, looking with eyes of faith. And I wonder how often he said to himself, Lord, could this one be the one. And Simeon waited receptively. When God said, this is the one, he was ready to receive the message. He was ready to respond. There was this sense of spiritual receptivity. His spiritual ears were open so that he could hear. Simeon also waited obediently. When the Holy Spirit pointed to the Messiah, Simeon was ready to act. And he did. See, his waiting now required obedience. And Luke tells us that Simeon blessed God. That word means to speak well of, to eulogize. Simeon must have been overwhelmed with gratitude and praise to God for his faithfulness to the promise that he had made. And finally, Simeon accepted his release. He's saying to the Lord, Lord, my life is complete. It's fulfilled. I'm ready to die. The gift of the Christ promised so long ago was present. He was there. 
And that was enough for Simeon. In his blessing, he reflects on the majesty of God revealed to him about the Christ. Look again at verses 30 to 32 in the text. Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I wonder, I wonder what the people around Simeon thought as he declared God's majesty as revealed in the Christ and his mission was not just for Israel, but was for the entire world. Now, it shouldn't have surprised those knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures, but we often see in the pages of the gospel over and over how God's chosen people rejected the chosen one. Simeon looked forward with eager anticipation there must have been a stirring in his heart and his mind each day as he awakened, wondering, is this the day? And so Simeon arranged his whole life, his purpose, his focus, his anticipation, his expectation, all around this first coming of Christ. There's another person that Mary and Joseph encountered when they were in Jerusalem. It's a woman named Anna. If you've got the text, look at starting at verse 36. Luke says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Biblical scholars differ in the reading. The Greek here in the New Testament text is, is just a little unclear. There are some who believe the text more accurately reads that she was a widow for 84 years. If that's the case, you add the 84 to the seven years married, Add perhaps 13 years, the age at probably which she was married, and Anna might have been 104. But whether it's 84 or 104, she's waited a long time. As to what she's praying for, I would guess it's the same as Simeon, for the consolation of Israel. She would have known the promises of the coming Messiah from the Hebrew Scriptures, She's waiting for God to favor his people by sending Messiah. And God gave her the recognition that this child brought by Mary and Joseph was the chosen one, the promised one, the redeemer of Israel. And she began to speak about him. Again, you have to wonder about all these people that are in the temple standing around Anna listening to her say these things. And think of the impact that this had on Mary and Joseph. Two people, Simeon and Anna, who hoped for the promised Messiah. Two people who waited in faith for the see the fulfillment of what God had promised and revealed to them. So what about you and me this morning? What can we take away from the experiences of Anna and Simeon? Let me answer that question with three other questions. What should we wait for? 
How should we wait? And why should we wait? So what should we wait for? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, we wait for Jesus to show up at Christmas. I don't know, you may have noticed in your life, as we get a little older, the dangers where we become a little jaded about Christmas. It's so ho-hum. And, and as long as we turn our radio station on for Christmas music, this year before Thanksgiving, trying to get into the mood, is, you know, it's a sense of, can I somehow recapture the moment? Can I, can I recapture the wonder of Christmas that you see in faces as they await Christmas morning, the faces of children? I remember growing up, I grew up out on the farm, and uh, we had a large front yard and then a gravel road, and on the other side lived an elderly couple, Otto and Bernie. They, they sort of became like another set of grandparents. They never had kids. And uh, after Thanksgiving, he would always set up, a you know, the nativity scene that he had made himself. Turn the spotlights on. And there were four of us kids. And we used to just stand, look out the living room window across the snow, across the road, and watch and look and see. There, were, there was just something about it that just captured us. Or picture a child standing before a Christmas tree looking in wonder and awe, transfixed by the beauty and the wonder of it all. Oh, that we as adults could recapture that wonder of Christmas in our hearts. William Quayle, American bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the early 20th century, wrote this, When wonder is dead, the soul becomes a dry bone. Might we experience this year the wonder of Christmas? I think we also wait for Jesus to show up a second time. Jesus has come. We no longer wait for him to come in redemption. That was the purpose of his first coming. But he's coming again. And that coming is going to be in two stages. First, he will come to receive those who believe in him, those who are living and those who are dead, and he will take them with him to be in heaven forever. This is called the rapture of the church. The second stage is judgment, not redemption. And he will come with his mighty angels to destroy the power of the evil one, to set up his kingdom on earth, and to establish truth and righteousness and justice. And so we're to eagerly hope for and look forward to his coming in glory to receive the church, all those who have put their trust in Christ for salvation. This reality, this certainty, should be the focus upon which we arrange our lives. Our focus, our purpose, our anticipation, our expectation. Oh, our life here is meaningful and it's important, but we always have to understand there's a much greater reality that's coming after that. I think it's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he penned these words to Titus. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Get this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works.
a third thought I have for you today, and that's that we might wait for Jesus to show up today. For some of you, this is a desperate need. You're faced with circumstances in life, whether it's discouragement or loss or difficulty. You know, forget about the future. You're waiting for Jesus to show up in the present. God's promises stand firm for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His peace is available to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God found in his Son, Jesus. God will cause everything, I repeat, everything in your life to work together for your ultimate good and for his glory. And this is because if you've trusted in Christ, you are God's child. And he's committed to working out his perfect plan in your life. A plan, listen, that even allows for difficulties in your life. I love this passage from Psalm 27. It comes from the hand of King David, who surely knew trouble and difficulty. From the New American Standard Version, he says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. What should we wait for? Well, how should we wait? We see in the experience of Simeon and Anna an example for us on how we're to wait. We should wait expectantly. You know, that, that'll counteract the tendency toward doubt. I wonder how tempted they were to doubt. To doubt that God, you know, what God had revealed to them. To doubt whether God were, would or wouldn't deliver. Maybe even to, to doubt whether they heard God correctly. To doubt whether they could hang in there or not. You know, they're not getting any younger. Someone has suggested that we should learn to doubt our doubts more than we doubt our faith. I think there's great wisdom to that. This is the choice that we made. To, to wait expectantly for God to show up, to work in our lives, to, to provide for our needs, to bring comfort and encouragement when that's what we need so desperately to experience his grace and his peace and his love and his presence. And I think we should wait expect actively. Simeon and Anna were active in their waiting. Every day they looked. Every day they anticipated. Every day they expected. Is that the spirit you have as we wait for God to return, to show up, to work? Waiting actively counteracts the tendency towards being disengaged. You know, we would think wrongly if we equate waiting with doing nothing. In the language of the New Testament, or I should say the Old Testament, because that's what I've been reading from here, waiting for the Lord is very much akin to hoping in the Lord. Last week, uh, when considering the subject of joy, we looked at Psalm 126. It's one of those psalms called a song of ascents. Uh, these songs were sung by the Hebrew people as they made their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts that God had instructed for them. So let's look at another part of those ascent psalms, this time from Psalm 130, just these few verses. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. About the meaning of the word hope, Eugene Peterson writes, Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It's not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he would do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. That's what's involved in waiting on the Lord. Simeon and Anna were very active in their waiting for the fullness of God's revelation to them. And that's the attitude that we're to have. So that even when we don't understand the why of our situation, uh, we are waiting for God to show up. But we know the one who knows all the whys, the ultimate whys in our lives. So it's a confident, active expectation that we will see God work in his way, in his time. Listen. It doesn't necessarily make it easier. It makes it bearable. I don't think it was easy for Simeon and Anna day after day to carry on with life, waiting for God to show up. Don't you think they took a little grief from their families, from their friends, and probably from the religious leaders in the temple? Well, there's a third question, and that's why should we wait? I think the answer to this question is tied to the very character of God. God is faithful to keep his promise. And Simeon and Anna tied their hopes to the fact that God had promised. They believed that he would deliver on his promise. There wasn't any other evidence that I am aware of that provided this confident expectation. They simply clung to God's faithfulness. When you find yourself in the situation of waiting for God to show up, you wait because you believe God will be true to his word. Sometimes there's no other evidence that relief is coming, that deliverance is coming, but you put your trust in God and in his promise to be near you, to walk with you through every circumstance of life, to provide his peace and his presence and his power to persevere. Someone has said, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. The knot is the promises of God. And on the other end of the rope, perhaps the only thing keeping you from falling into despair and discouragement stands God, the creator of all the galaxies, the savior of your soul, the father who loves you dearly, and the one who's bound by his very oath 
to work his good for you with a view to eternity. Part of the essence of Christmas is hope. J.I. Packer writes, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Christmas is a message of hope. I hope all of you here have come to that point in your life where you've put your hope in Christ. That means to put your trust in him, put your faith in him, put your belief in him and what he's done. If not, may I encourage you to think deeply about the truth of Christmas because it will not only change your life if you embrace it, it will change your eternity. Your destiny is changed forever so that we receive the Christ child who is now in glory, seated at the Father's right hand in power and authority and dominion forever, but invite this one to invade your life through his Holy Spirit and to live within you. That's the wonderful message of Christmas. That's the message of the gospel. I want to leave you this morning with this. It comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 15. Look at how these themes are, are woven together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you are our wonderful and loving Heavenly Father who cared enough to send your Son that he might come and be the sin-bearer for all the world. Lord, may we be captured again by the wonder of Christmas this season to think about what it cost you as the eternal Son steps out of eternity into time and comes to earth and takes upon our humanity and our sinfulness, the one who is united now with the Father, but who loves us and gives us of his Spirit. May this be a Christmas where we celebrate your goodness and your grace to us, regardless of our life circumstances. And so we bless you as Simeon blessed you, and we thank you for the wonderful blessing of your Son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.